Guess what? I'm moving country again. I don't know. Maybe a year. Maybe more. Where's home? Home's everywhere. I'm an expat. Hello, it's Pauline from Meet the Expats. Today I meet with Robert Norris, who has been an expat for 40 years now in Japan and recently wrote his memoir and tribute to his mother, where he retraces his backpacking, hitchhiking experiences through the US and Europe and his time in Japan. So in this episode, we'll be discussing his love for travel, adventure, and also what it's like teaching and growing old in uh, in Japan. So hi, Robert. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> well, thank you. You seem to have quite a life full of adventures. I'm excited to, to hear more about it. Maybe introduce yourself briefly to our audience, and then we'll hop in. Okay, well, my name is Robert Norris, and I'm 72 years old, and I've lived in Japan for 40 years now. I came to Japan in 1983. Uh, Before that, in my 20s, I lived a rather nomadic, adventurous type of (laughs) life, and uh, eventually, at the age of 32, ended up here in Japan, and uh, didn't know how long I would be able to stay, but 40 years have passed, and here we are, and I've been retired for the last seven years after teaching, oh, 25 years in the university system. And before that, maybe another seven, eight years of uh, company classes and English conversation and vocational schools. And uh, of course, met my wife and got married and became a, a long-term expat. And yeah. so looking back on it all now, it's all flown by really fast. But yes. <laughs> I'm also uh, the author of three novels, a novella, and uh, most recently, uh, a kind of memoir and uh, tribute to my mother, who had a big influence on my life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go back to the beginnings, then. How did this love for travel and nomadic life start? Well, it's really quite a long story, but uh, uh, I came of age during the Vietnam War in the 1960s. And at that time, we were all, all the young men, at least of that generation, were facing uh, conscription, the draft. Right. And at the age of 18, if you weren't in university or, or weren't rich or something like that, uh, you were, uh, you were sent the odds off. were... Yeah, the odds were that you would get drafted and probably sent to Vietnam. So at that time, uh, a reasonable alternative seemed to be maybe joining the Air Force or or the Navy, which was a much longer commitment, but the odds were reduced a bit for going to uh, directly to the war. Mm. I got talked into uh, uh, joining the Air Force by a recruiter who promised us the world that we could play basketball all day long and... <laughs> have all kinds of adventures Uh and never have to worry about anything. But once I entered the Air Force, uh, fate played a cruel trick. And uh, I ended up getting trained in combat and how to use weapons. And my job became uh, a security guard for the B-52 bombers that were bombing uh, North Vietnam and dropping all kinds of napalm and many other types of bombs. And So at that time, I was listening to a lot of uh, the current music uh, that 
had a lot of anti-war lyrics and mm -hmm. Bob Dylan and Crosby, Stills and Nash and other groups like that. And was reading a lot of the underground papers that were finding their way on base and uh, talked to a lot of soldiers who had returned from Vietnam. And uh, there was actually quite a, a bit of a, a movement against the war from within the military itself. And I ended up right. making friends with some of those people. And eventually my order to Vietnam came and I decided to apply for conscientious objector status. And uh, of course that was refused, but when my uh, official order to go overseas came, I refused. And at that time, uh, the, the penalty for that would have been five years in, in a military prison in what was called a, a dishonorable discharge, which would prevent you from getting any kind of good job in the outside world. Well, uh, I was court-martialed, and uh, wow. when I was given my order, I actually never used the word no. I, I refused in a sense, but I didn't use the word no. I just kept repeating the same sentence over and over. I don't feel I can uh, kill another human being, and I think this war is wrong. And uh, at my court-martial, I was actually found not guilty of the original charge, which was called willful disobedience to a direct order but guilty of a lesser military crime called negligent disobedience to a lawful order. Okay. And the penalty for that was six months in prison and a different type of discharge. So after I served my time, I returned to society. And of course, I had gone through many changes by then. And I tried school for a while and I worked a few labor jobs, but uh, somehow I just felt a bit alienated. And that time, uh, a lot of young people, uh, counterculture types, uh, were hitchhiking around the country and some were actually going to Europe. And I found an interesting book called Europe on $5 a day and how to backpack around <laughs> Europe on the cheap. Wow. Not today anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. So, uh, when I was 22 years old, uh, I had saved a little bit of money from uh, working some labor jobs and I ended up hitchhiking across the United States from California to New York and took a short uh, cheap uh, airlines uh, which landed in Luxembourg and from there I had right. no idea what I was going to do or where I was going to go but Paris seemed the ideal place to go so that was my first place. I ended up meeting uh, an art student there who uh, we traveled together for a few days and she ended up giving me an itinerary to follow and go to all the different uh, art museums art like the Prado places. and the Uffizi and, and the Louvre. Wow. And so I spent the next five or six months bumming around Europe and meeting a lot of young Europeans who were doing the same thing, backpacking around. And uh, I was always uh, envious of their ability to speak four or five different languages, and I only spoke my own native language, and their lives seemed so exciting and fulfilled. Uh, there were poets and musicians and uh, painters, and uh, they were all expressing themselves, and, and wow. I, I was really attracted to that. So when my money ran out, I returned to the States, and I now had uh, a kind of uh, goal. I, I wanted to become a writer. So from okay. there, I started uh, studying literature and reading a lot of books and writing short stories. And uh, fast forward about four years, I 
had worked a few more jobs and saved a little bit of money, and I felt I was ready to uh, write a novel. So I was heavily under oh. the influence of uh, such expatriate novelists like Henry Miller and, and Ernest Hemingway. And so I, I wanted to follow in their footsteps, and I ended up in Paris okay. again. This was in <laughs> 1977. And Writing the at a cheap- cafe in Paris, a cafe de yeah. Well, I didn't have much money, so most of my time was spent walking the streets on the left bank but in the <laughs> wintertime. But that was an adventure in itself. Anyway, one day I, I came back to my cheap room, and there was an Iranian and an Afghan uh, trying to convey a message to the front desk clerk, who spoke, of course, only French. And by then, I picked up a few phrases, and so I was able to give a rough translation of the message they wanted to give, and he understood. And they were so uh, appreciative of what I'd done that uh, they ended up inviting me back to their countries with them. And uh, uh, the Iranian was selling uh, carpets and other artistic materials, and the Afghan was basically doing the same thing. They had a friend in Germany who they were uh, going to go visit. So they gave me his address. I ended up going there and traveled back with the Iranian who bought a a Mercedes Benz to uh, go on the old uh, hippie trail. It was called the Overland Trail in those days, but uh, with the idea that he would sell the car at the end of the trip to in, uh, in Iran and to cover the the cost of the journey. So we had quite a few adventures going through Italy and uh, Turkey and Bulgaria and uh, the eastern mountains of Turkey. We we were very lucky to get through alive. There were a few close calls (laughs) there, sort of uh, mountainous uh, bandit country, and it was still wintertime, so we ended up sliding off this you can't really call it a paved road or anything. It was a mountainous dirt trail that a lot of the trucks were, were following. And uh, we got stuck there a couple of different times. But somehow, uh, you know, luck was on our side. We made it through to Iran, where I spent about two months and continued from there on to Afghanistan, which is impossible these days. But uh, that was quite an adventure. Mm-hmm. I, I spent about a month with my friend there in the city of Kabul. And from there on to Pakistan and India. And the entire trip took about maybe 10 months or so and ended up back in the United States uh, and suffered a a bad case of reverse culture shock. I can imagine after all Uh, that. How did you settle? (laughs) Yeah. But throughout all those adventures, um, and at the time I, I could pick up jobs here and there working as a cook or a laborer. That was my uh, method of survival. And at any rate, uh, I wanted very strongly to live and work and study in a foreign country. And I thought mm, maybe okay. someplace in Spain or someplace in Europe would have been ideal, Greece perhaps. But uh, as it turned out, a few years later, uh, I had a friend uh, who was a writer and he was living on the island of Maui. And he was renting a house there and had a a room open. And I'd saved a few thousand dollars by then working in an oil camp way out in the desert in Mm. Wyoming, working as a cook for all these laborers. So uh, I went there with all these dreams in my head. And uh, 
he told me that it would be possible to find a job teaching English in, in Japan. And that, uh, oh, wow. yeah, at that time, well, he hadn't been real successful with his books in America, but they'd been translated into Japanese and he'd been more successful in Japan with his books than in the United States. <laughs> and he had a couple Sometimes, of friends. You know. <laughs> yeah. He had a couple of friends who were working in Japan and he gave me their addresses and uh, they said I could stay with them until I got set up. And so at the age of 32, with my money running out, I, I bought a one-way ticket uh, to Japan wow. and, and stayed about, yeah, that's how I ended up here. <laughs> it's amazing because every every beginning of an adventure like this with when you're saying it is just because you met someone who invited you or told you to go see their friends and it, it's quite crazy how these connections just brought you so far and led you to through these countries yeah i i think it's well at that time there was a kind of code of the road where a lot of the young people the the, the hippie generation you know there was like an underground network where people would uh, stay someplace for maybe a week and maybe work picking fruit or something like that in Spain. And they'd had a, yeah. a friend who put them up for a few days and uh, they'd pass on the, the address and the name and just use my name and you can stay there for three or four days and maybe find a job that won't pay any money, but they'll feed you. And uh, yeah, I, just a, a kind of faith in the unknown, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Completely. Yeah. I feel like today there's a bit of the fear of fear of the unknown and a fear of people in a way where you wouldn't necessarily have that trust to you know couch surf some random person's place. I do hope it still exists. I, I do see some some people around me, I've heard of a couple of stories of people still going through that, but it's so, so rare. Yeah, I think it was probably a lot easier back then. Uh, you know, this is long before the internet mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, started and, and information flowed a lot more slowly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the borders were somewhat open, uh, at least in, in Europe. And of course, uh, on the old hippie trail that lasted from probably the late 1950s till the late 1970s. And then uh, actually I was there in Iran and Afghanistan in 1977. And this was about a year and a half before the Iranian revolution happened. And mm. you know, they closed all borders uh, and no yeah. uh, foreigners were allowed in and out. And of course, the 1980s uh, saw the war between Iraq and Iran, and then, uh, you know, the 90s, the Taliban took over Afghanistan. And so probably my generation was the last generation to be able to make that journey uh, yeah. relatively safely. But again, there are still a lot of places left in the world. And, and with your generation, there's a new phenomenon that seems to be happening with digital nomads who are able to... Yes. Uh, live and work in different places as long as they have a certain set of skills. Yeah. And so maybe that's the new uh, 
generation's uh, way of living the same type of lifestyle. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's fast forward. You're in Japan with all this life of, you know, touring the world and living here and there, really this nomadic life. What made you settle in Japan? How, how, I mean, how come you've been here for 40 years? Yeah, again, I think I was just lucky. Uh, I found a job teaching in an English conversation school within the first week that I was in Japan. And okay. yeah, in a sense, I was working illegally. I was on a tourist visa. But uh, <laughs> about two or three weeks later, again, just walking down the street, I ran into another American who had worked at the same school. And he had gone independent. He was married to a Japanese, so he had a, a long-term visa. And he had started his own conversation school. This was in 1983, so Japan's economy was really starting to boom about yeah. that time. And there was a great demand for uh, studying English. And even a lot of the bigger companies were investing a lot of money. And so English was necessary for this uh, period of internationalization. And so uh, this guy invited me to come work for him. He, so I quit the first job and went to work for him. And I was studying Japanese at that time privately. And right. he said, well, why don't we put the, the Japanese teacher's name on our uh, books uh, as an employee? And uh, that way we can provide <laughs> a, a, a student uh, visa. Uh, for you as a student of Japanese. And then oh. if you could also get permission at that time, you were allowed to work maybe up to 20 hours a, a week or so. Of course, that was on the surface. I was actually working a lot right. more hours. but mm. And it, it was a good training ground, and I was able to extend my visa there. And uh, the neighborhood that I was living in was sort of a suburb of uh, Osaka and also Kobe in between the two right. larger cities. And I was in a rather poor section of town and I was able to find a really cheap uh, one room apartment. Of course, there was no uh, bath in it, uh, no shower, and, uh, but I went to the local neighborhood uh, Sento public bath every mm. night. It was very cheap in those days. And and there was a liquor store on the way where I would occasionally stop and buy a beer from a vending machine. And one day I stopped there and there were a bunch of softball players inside the liquor store and they were watching me and kind of laughing. And they came out and motioned for, let's play catch, throw the ball around <sighs> a little bit. And I ended up joining their softball team and they became like my uh, surrogate family over the next three or four years. And, and that was where I was able to practice Japanese and get to know the community a little yeah. bit. And so I, I, that was the life that I lived. Uh, there were no other native speakers of English in the area I was living. Mm. So even to go into a you restaurant, have a choice. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to learn to survive. You start out with numbers, you know, how much does a meal cost or <laughs> And, yeah. you know, you get a lot of questions. Where are you from? Why are you in Japan? What are you doing? And, and I loved baseball. And so baseball became kind of my textbook. Uh, the Japanese love baseball and they have baseball yeah. games on TV all the time and on the radio. So I would uh, turn the volume down on the TV that I had 
and then uh, turn on the radio and listen to this rapid fire uh, Osaka dialect uh, announcer. And that helped me a lot with uh, learning to uh, understand Japanese. And I studied very seriously and working in this conversation school for about three years. I dealt with every possible teaching situation from little two-year-olds to uh, company workers. And anyway, uh, I ended up meeting my wife and we got married, a Japanese uh, lady. And uh, that was probably the deciding factor in making a commitment to staying here. Yeah. Yeah. But after uh, I got married, well, actually before I got married, I I decided, uh, yeah, I made the commitment. I, I want to spend the rest of my life here. I, I was enjoying my life. I was living my dream. I was living and working in a foreign country. I was studying a foreign language, learning how, you know, day by day, how to communicate. And so uh, it was a very exciting time and making a lot of friends and drinking a lot at the time <laughs> in Japan. They loved to drink. And, uh, I decided, well, I didn't have any qualifications, so uh, I found a a correspondence course uh, with an American university that offered a bachelor's and a master's degree in education and a specialty in teaching of English as a a foreign language. So it took about seven years, uh, but I finally got the bachelor's degree. I found a a better job at a vocational school with a higher salary. in Fukuoka. At that time, I was up near Osaka. And uh, so when I got this new job, I moved down here with my wife to Fukuoka. And Mm -hmm. then uh, I found a part-time job teaching at a women's junior college. And about the same time I ended up getting my master's degree, there was an opening at the women's junior college for a uh, full-time foreign teacher in, in the English department. And so at the age of 41, a late bloomer here, <laughs> I got my first full-time job with benefits and, <laughs> well and insurance and, and paying into a pension fund and Zoom, you know, 24 <laughs> years later, I turned 65, retired, and here I am now. But the, those early days were very special for me, especially the neighborhood I was living in and uh, the community that uh, accepted me so graciously. They, they were like my surrogate parents. You know, They took care of me whenever I made a lot of faux pas and a lot of mistakes in Japanese. But they, well, it's easy to make faux pas in Japan. <laughs> There's so many yeah, yeah. unsaid social rules. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> well, impressive life, for sure. Let's talk about the book. Briefly, maybe? Ah, yeah, yeah, sure. The Good Lord Gwilling and the Creek Don't Rise. Yeah, it's a long title. Uh, the Good Lord Willing and the Creek Don't Rise, uh, Pentimental Memories of Mom and Me. The title, actually, well, my mother had a huge uh, influence on my life. We, we had a very special relationship. She had a tough time, but... Uh, she grew up very poor during the Depression, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the John Steinbeck novel, The Grapes of Wrath. My mother's family's life was very similar to that family. They were very poor farmers, and, and uh, the Great Depression ruined their businesses, but they were 
uh, in North Dakota, and they ended up uh, going to uh, Oregon and Washington and settling there. And so she grew up in a very tight family, but a very poor family. And uh, she ended up uh, marrying my father, who was actually a World War II hero, uh, who wow. was stationed in England and flew with the Army Air Force. And Well, their marriage lasted for about maybe 12 or 13 years, but ended up in divorce. And she had a pretty rough time for a couple, three years as a divorcee. Uh, and her religion was uh, Catholicism. And so that they actually banned in the 1950s, up to the 1950s and 60s, anyone from marrying again. But she got married again, mm -hmm. and so she was more or less kicked out of the church and okay. uh, for that. And so she had to deal with a lot of uh, ostracism and uh, hard times economically. But she was tough and uh, very independent. And in her 40s, uh, she got her private pilot's license, and she flew oh. with the Division of Forestry for a couple of years as a fire lookout. And uh, she went to night school uh, to gain a qualification to become a, a, a legal secretary. And so she started her career in her late 40s, actually, late. And, and worked yeah. until she was about so similar, similar lives. Yeah, yeah. And she had always dreamed of going to, to Ireland, you know, she was a Murphy, you know, she was Irish. Yeah, okay. And so <laughs> Irish roots. Uh, yeah, one, one of our great uh, adventures together was a, a trip to Ireland, uh, her 70s by then. But uh, we ended up going to Ireland for a full month wow. and we followed uh, her ancestors' footsteps and found some, some distant cousins and some graveyards. Okay. And it was like the, the highlight of her life. And uh, yeah, she was just very independent, strong. She came to Japan about eight different times, and she started studying Japanese, and uh, that was our, our mode of communication. Uh, we got hooked up through the internet. I would teach her Japanese, and she would send me homework, and, you know, and oh, then she... Wow. <laughs> anyway, she was a very optimistic person, and she used to use that phrase uh, whenever she was faced with some difficulty or her kids were faced with some difficulty, she would always say, well, everything will turn out okay. The good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Okay, so that's a full tribute to your mother then. Yeah. And the Pentimental Memories part, uh, there was another writer that I really liked a lot. Her name was... Uh, Lillian Hellman, she was a playwright from the 1930s, 40s, and 1950s. And uh, she wrote some memoirs in her 60s and 70s. And the title of the book was called Pentimento. And, and Pentimento is a, a term used in painting. And it, okay. what it means is when a painter paints something and mm. then changes his or her mind and paints over that, as oh, if they okay. repented or something. And so it becomes a new painting in that. Uh, and uh, this Lillian Hellman used the term as a kind of metaphor for memory. And when we get into our 60s, 70s, and 80s, when we reflect back on our life and try to remember those things, uh, are we painting over the original memory or what's true, what oh, really happened? You know, and, real one. Yeah. yeah, and so when my mother passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 95, 
what I was left with was a lifetime of correspondence and some videotapes, and and, and I thought I, I want to uh, pay tribute to her life, and I, mm. that's I was able to use all those old family stories and weave them together with my own story and her story. All right, beautiful. Yeah. So the book is available on Amazon, and the link will be in the comments. Oh, thank all you, right. thank you. Well, let's move on to your recommendations in Japan. Well, uh, bars. I used to spend a lot of time in bars <laughs> in Japan. <laughs> I did uh, enjoy a lot of what they call standing bars, uh, tachinomia, these little neighborhood type of bars where the customers are mainly... Uh, or they used to be mainly men on their way home from work who would stop in for a drink or two, uh, usually a family-run place. And uh, while drinking, they would uh, be standing and then maybe having some uh, hors d'oeuvres or something, Japanese-style uh, sweets or something, and and uh, have lively conversation about sports. Mm -hmm. And you can find a lot of those just about anywhere in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they're a lot of fun. They're a good way for a foreigner to practice their Japanese because you know, <laughs> the beer seems to loosen the tongue a lot. But yeah, uh, become fluent straight away. <laughs> in the Fukuoka area, any person who was traveling here from outside uh, would not have the uh, complete Fukuoka experience if they didn't try these yatai food stalls. They're famous in, okay. in uh, Fukuoka and, and they're located uh, in a central part of the city called uh, Nakasu and mm. they just seat maybe at the most eight or ten people and uh, you know there's lively conversation and the owners are usually uh, characters that entertain you a lot and they have all the the great food that Fukuoka is famous for, comfort food, the, the mm. Fukuoka uh, Kyushu ramen and uh, gyoza. And, uh, closer to home, there's a restaurant that my wife and I used to go to occasionally before the pandemic that set. Uh, I live in a, a town called Chikushino, which is about 20, 30 minutes outside of Fukuoka. And it's out in the country a little bit. And there's an area in the mountains that's forested. And in the midst of this uh, forested area is this huge uh, log house restaurant called Alaska. And they smoke okay. their own salmon. Uh, they uh, smoke their own cheeses. They have a, lot, a kind of Western uh, style menu, but their salads uh, and soups are Japanese style, and they have a lot of uh, mountain vegetables that are picked fresh from a uh, nearby area. And it's just a beautiful setting. They have a terrace. Uh, when the weather's nice, you can sit out. And mm. I would highly recommend that restaurant, too, just for the atmosphere alone. And the food, of course, is really, really good. Right. Uh, a song? You recommended yeah. song? Expat song. Uh, I chose that resonates with you. <laughs> yeah, an old song, not probably all that well known outside of the generation that experienced it, but uh, it was the theme song from a mid 1990s uh, sort of B grade movie about a young yakuza and a girlfriend, a beautician, 
that he made. And he was trying to get out of the Yakuza uh, lifestyle. Uh, and yeah. they, she ended up uh, getting pregnant and they were uh, going to get married and set up a new life. And then unfortunately she died in a car accident and it was kind of a dark ending, but the theme song for this, even 25 years later, when I listened to it, I get all choked up. <laughs> The name of the song is uh, called Road, and it's the, in Japanese, the katakana pronunciation would be And uh, the group was called Torabu Ryu. But uh, yeah, it's a nice, uh, nice melody, nice uh, lyrics, another way to study Japanese a bit. <laughs> Okay, and so why does it resonate with your expat journey? I think the title attracted me to it because I've spent so much of my life on the road. On the road. And uh, yeah. one of my favorite writers was Jack uh, Kerouac, who wrote that famous book, On the Road. The road. And <laughs> that was given to me by a Dutch girl in my first journey in 1973. She introduced me to Jack Kerouac. and. Since then, just the word road has had a kind of psychological Resonance. appeal to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe you feel the same way as well. I was born with itchy feet, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah, I do. I constantly question myself of, should I be here back in Paris? And yeah, I do feel I'm settled. I'm not saying I will stay here forever, but... Uh, do, you, do you have any yeah. uh, dreams of making one more adventure? or Not really. I think the fact that I'm in a company that allows for remote work, uh. I'm more of, I like the fact that I have my home base in Paris and I can do, I can just take the road for a few months and come back. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's more where I'm at currently in my head and not necessarily of scrap everything and leave forever, you know? Um, yeah. Well, there comes a, a point in life, yeah. Yeah. So I feel grounded right now. Uh, but who knows, you know, maybe in a year or two the itch will come back. <laughs> Never know. Yeah. Yeah, my, my itchy feet syndrome, I think, probably ended in my 30s uh, after yeah. spending almost my entirety uh, or the entirety of my 20s on I mean, the road. I mean, it's also the, the exhaustion of, you know, creating the life again, making new yeah, friends, yeah, yeah. understanding the codes and how the whole country works and the admin and... It's exhausting. It's exhausting. It's exhausting, and I know what awaits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well, if I you've never done lucky. it, you just go dive in, and and you realize after. But when you know what what is coming, I think it's it's harder. It might be a little bit harder to project. Yeah, and if you've gone through that more than once, you know, two or three mm -hmm. times, and then just thinking about the next time, do you have the energy yeah. to do it again? <laughs> But you never know what life is made of. Yeah. Things might change. Well, I feel very fortunate that uh, at the end of all my trails, uh, I've ended up with uh, 
a pension and the, the, mm-hmm. uh, the healthcare system is still functioning here. Uh, I don't know if it'll gotcha. be there for the next generation because Japan's mm-hmm. uh, aging know, country, aging country and, and the unemployment rate among young people is pretty high. And, and even those who are working are doing a lot of gig work, you know, they don't have the, oh, wow. you know, the security of, uh, benefits of having uh, insurance again knock on wood you know (laughs) we were very (laughs) lucky here and uh, that was another thing Uh, yeah in in the writing of that book I wanted to record all that because who knows that Mm. that era might be gone of having the freedom to do that thank you thank you so much for for sharing you have an impressive life it does want make me want to take the road at least on an adventure for sure <laughs> maybe not to live fully abroad but at least go on a big road trip well, as long as you're networking <laughs> it's possible yeah. yeah well thank you too very much pauline i've enjoyed it guys thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed this inspiring episodes with robert um if you liked the episode please put a rating on apple podcasts and spotify If you want to contribute, there is a TP open. I'll put the link in the comments. And as usual, stay tuned for the next episode and all the info will be on Instagram.